Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Code Monkey, get up, get coffee. Code Monkey, go to job. Code Monkey, have boring meeting with boring manager Rob. Rob say Code Monkey, very diligent, but his output... Finished the last one, right? Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. So uh, today, most a lot of this stuff is stuff you've seen before, um, and putting it together for this class. So it's all this is basically all stuff about how uh, about neural mechanisms uh, and having them work depending on uh, situations, species, etc. Um, behavior of the nervous system, and particularly the brain. Um, Especially, of course, if we're talking about vertebrates, uh, invertebrates, they don't. It's like a brain. Say, let's say we can think of it as vertebrate brain, okay? But for example, you can look at a bee and look at its. They have something that's akin to a hippocampus, but they're called mushroom bodies. They're called that because they look like little mushrooms. Um, and they seem to be important in memory. So, you know, while we tend to be more interested in, in, in vertebrates, Inverts have nervous systems, and they have something that is quite similar to a brain. You don't always call it a brain; it is always called that. Sometimes it's just called, you know, uh, some sort of ganglia, uh, ganglion rather. Uh, so you get, uh, like, in a worm, for example, you will very often get something—not something like a nematode that only has three hundred two neurons, but like a, an earthworm. Um, anybody here ever in high school dissected an earthworm? Must have done that. Yeah, good. Right? Remember that? They had—they got like a weird nervous system where they've got this. Enlarged kind of part of their, I don't want to call it a spinal cord, it's in the spine, <laughs> part of their uh, nervous system, I guess you'll say. But then they've got, then it's sort of straight, but then there's another big one, then it's straight, and another one like that. So they've got a whole bunch of, this eventually, you know, uh, in evolution, when we became vertebrates, that the, the big sort of part of the top became what we call brain. So you can talk about that, but it's similar enough. And of course, the neurons work exactly the same way. Um, I was in an argument with someone who uh, was talk- we were talking about uh, biological basis of behavior and things like that. And, and, I, and I said, you know, acetylcholine works the same way in you as it does in an nematode. And the person said, no, it doesn't. And I said, okay, how does it work then? And of course, they didn't know acetylcholine was. So it was a fun argument. That's when I walked away. Um, so it's interesting in that respect that it really doesn't matter how much, how a nervous, what the nervous system is in, it works the same way. The principles are the same. Um, evolution, of course, only acts on the phenotype, and the phenotype in this case is the behavior. Evolution can't directly act on a genotype. It acts on the expression of the genotype, right? <coughs> and behavior is the output of the brain. So therefore, evolution acts on the brain. I don't think I really needed this series of statements to convince you guys of this. I hope not. But uh, that's sort of the logic here. All right. Key terms here. Uh, these are all terms you would know. So I'm not going to spend a ridiculous amount of time on these things. A neuron... I uh, said yesterday in Brain of Behavior, a nice definition, an operational definition of neuron is the basic information processing unit of the brain. Um, that's as good one as any. If you're a brain behavior, you know there's all kinds of neurons, let's not worry about that yet. 
in this class ever. An action potential is when a neuron fires. An interneuron is a neuron that goes that's between a sensory neuron and a motor neuron. Most of our nervous system, no matter what we are, any kind of animal, is interneurons. Right? It's mostly interneurons. There are sensory neurons and motor neurons. Sensory neurons detect something in the environment. Motor neurons make the animal move. So this could be detecting light. This could be detecting, uh, you know, air pressure, which is sound. This could be detecting chemicals. That's something like smell. A receptor. There's two meanings for that, of course. You can have a receptor cell, which is basically another name for a sensory neuron, or you can have a receptor site on a neuron. And that receptor site is neurotransmitters bind to the receptor site and make the neuron fire. Right? Okay. Questions? Yeah, I mean, this is all stuff you know. Today may be very short. Because most of you guys have seen most of these things before. So probably all of you have. Most of them. Of course, there'd be mons and bats, my favorite thing in the world. This, though, is an indication it's not just my favorite thing in the world. This was done in the 50s. This is something that's really surprising in some respects, because this is single-cell recording, electrophysiology. Is anybody actually taking Tori's uh, uh, neurobiology course? I'll take that as a no, uh, because I know she was doing a class the other day on electrophysiology. Uh, and basically, the way this works, you take a neuron and you put a microelectrode across the membrane of the cell, and you measure you measure current, okay? And Lori would tell me I have just simplified that to a level of ridiculousness, but that's all we have to care about, right? So you just take this little very, they're, they're thin like a, like a thread thin, but it's not electric, and you just put it across the cell. And you can do this in a petri dish, if you want, or you can do this in an animal. And then you measure the change in, in, in current. But you can see here, people have been citing this paper for years. 1957. 1957 this was done. This is something that should impress you. All right. So you've seen these slides except with a different background. You know the moth ear has two neurons, A1 and A2. And they're not frequency sensitive, but they do respond to low frequencies. Or sorry, they do not respond to low frequencies, right? Who here has never heard me talk about mods and that? I didn't think so. I think the whole university said that. Of course, my colleagues heard it. I saw it right in the street and I told them about lots of nuts. This actually comes from the Alcock Animal Behavior Book. That's where these pictures come from. The book we aren't using, the book I used to use. Um, and you know how it's hooked up that the wing muscle is hooked up directly to the A1 neuron. And when Raider, uh, I think it's Raider, because it's R-O-E-D-E-R, and that looks like a anglicization of R-O-E-D-E-R, probably, so I think it's Raider. Anyway, um, the higher the, the, this has to be high frequency, right? High frequency is like 100,000 decibels. Oh, sorry, 100,000 decibels. 100,000 hertz. 100,000 decibels isn't frequency, it's intensity, and we'd all be dead if we were to send that. Um, so 100,000 hertz, right, which is something that we can't hear. 
we got to remember that. This is what this is the kind of ultrasounds that bats send out, <clears throat> and it's something we can't hear. Right. And bats do this in a lot of uh, full form for navigation, uh, for detecting prey. There were these great experiments done by what's his name? Oh, I just had it, I just lost it. Donald Griffin. Uh, and what Griffin did is he would in a I don't know what you call a room you keep bats in. If they were birds, we call it an aviary. It's a, I guess it's a batty area. I don't know. Um, and it was completely dark. And he had flies flying around, and they would catch these flies, which was pretty impressive. He was the guy that figured out the echolocation thing. This is around the same time. This is early 60s, I think. And then he puts up a bunch of string, but like threads, really super thin threads. All over the room, which, and it's completely, it's a light type room, it's completely dark. Then he lets the flies in there. And then he has, then the bats are still able to catch these flies and avoid all these little strings. And they're doing this completely using sand, using ultrasound. So they're very good at this. And Griffin said that uh, a bat with its ultrasound abilities, is able to paint as rich a visual picture with sound as we have with vision. So we can actually, in essence, see without seeing. So they're very good at this. They're sending up these ultrasounds over 100,000 hertz. Um, bats can detect a difference. And of course, how they're doing this by the bounce back, right? So the, the, the sound bounces back. Uh, uh, the echo, basically, it's called echolocation. And to do this, you have to be able to detect differences in at the, the, the speed at which a sound arrives to your ear, right? Because the closer the sound is, or the closer whatever you're getting to is, the more quickly it bounces back, more quickly it echoes. And bats are able to uh, discriminate sounds that are that far apart, point oh. Oh, 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 oh. One second apart. Bats can discriminate those. This is why they were able to fly around in a completely dark room. What's that Did I do that? I don't think I did that. That's kind of crazy. Alright. Okay. I'll hold on to this. So, this is why, evolutionarily, that the bats, or sorry, that the moths would have evolved a system that is able to detect an ear, that is able to detect simply really, really, really high-pitched sounds. Because the moth ear is simply for one thing. It's for detecting bats. That's what its function is. It's got no other function. So that's the, yeah, that's the picture there. So A1 is responsive, responsive to intensity, and that means that the louder the sound, right, the louder the sound, the more it fires. People have asked me before, like, neurons are either on or off, right? They can they only be firing or not firing. They can't be, they're not, it's not like an analog, it's not like a dimmer switch. You know like a dimmer switch on lights? Right? Neurons are more, neurons are like that, on or off. They aren't just a little bit or a little, not very much. But if, if, if you have something that fires more the louder the sound is even a single neuron, you can, you're, what you're basically doing is you're, you're taking something that's digital, on or off, and making it seem like it's analog. Just like our 
our whole nervous system is digital, but we seem to live in an analog world, right? We have shades of color, etc. So this doesn't violate the all or none law or anything like that. And a two fires only when there's really loud sounds. Hardly at all, hardly at all. That's just random girl firing, and then super loud. So if they two fires, the bat has to be very close. And here you can see a little diagram of what happens. If A1 fires, that means that wing beats faster than it's hooked up to, and the bat turns away from the predator. So it does a course correction 180 degrees away. This is really a cool thing. And there's that whole B neuron that I didn't talk about what B does. It's a, it detects if the wings are up or down. And by doing that, it can modulate the wing flap, allowing for detection not just of left and right, but also for up and down. So we've got basically, that's those two neurons are able to do this, A1 and B. And what A2 does, it makes the animal go crazy, right? It makes the animal, it turns off all the inhibition in the nervous system. A lot of what your nervous system is doing, and, and you again being an animal, is detect is inhibition. Right? And I mentioned the other brain behavior. This is why, for example, uh, alcohol, which is an inhibitor, loosens people up. You would think all it would do would be put you to sleep. You can go, go to sleep. It does that. But it also will make you more likely to do something that would be embarrassing because you're not getting the inhibitions going. So suddenly it's like, yeah, I think I will do terrible. That's a good idea. I think I will have unprotected sex with someone who I'm not married to. That's a great idea. Oh, and I'm already married. Yeah, what bad could happen? So she's a prostitute from Haiti. That's AIDS came from Haiti. They're all too good. That joke used to be funny. And not that AIDS jokes are ever funny, but you know, it's a bad decision, is what I'm saying. So what A2 does is just turns off all those inhibition circuits. So now the thing's just going to flap its wings randomly. So two neuron here can detect where predator is in the original space. <clears throat> there are other animals that have really, really... Uh... See what the bat's doing... So back up here. What the bat's doing is painting a picture of its animal. There are other animals that are able to do this too. A lot of um, owls can do this. Owls are almost always nocturnal, right? Which explains evolution. They have great big eyes because there's hardly any light. So the bigger your eye is, the better it's going to be at being a light catcher. It's like a telescope, right? Bigger telescope, you're going to see better. There's probably another telescope for a group of this. researching telescopes. She's got a better telescope than I used to have. So, you know, if it's this big around, which hurts isn't because I'm not, I'm not worth $10,000 just sitting around in my pocket. But if you have a telescope that's, you know, a meter in diameter, you're going to see a lot more detail than you are if you've got one of those little Canadian tire ones that's just this big around. You can always tell with that telescope, by the way, because on the box it tells you what power it has. 300 power, it doesn't really matter if there's nothing to see there. How far can it see? Someone once asked, asked me, how far can a human eye see? I said, I don't know, at least 93 million miles. And they go, what? I said, it's the sun. 
It's like two million miles away. I see it up in the sky. But it's the uh, detail within the flight. So owls have these great big eyes, but also they're really good at hearing. And I talked to you in great behavior, how they're good at sewing, but they're also really good at hearing. And I'll give you a little anecdote. Um, Barry Frost, who was a uh, psychologist slash neuroscientist at Queens, I'm sure he's retired. I don't think he's dead. That's why I said what. He told us a story. He gave you a team giving us a talk in the Ellen Behavior Group. And he told us the story of them doing single cell recording in an owl. So they brought this owl in a soundproof booth, and they're, they were looking for hearing. That's what they're trying to do. They're looking at the sense of hearing uh, in the owl. And I think it was a barn owl. And it used to be, nowadays, what you do is you get hooked up to a computer, and it would just, you actually still get those little graphs that show the uh, little line like that, but it used to be that it was a piece of paper that was rolling, and every time it was currently through it, a little, uh, the, the pen would jump. That's why it looks like that. It's, so it was, it was a mechanical device. So he's getting this constant. And you hear a click, like you audibly hear a click, because that's how you, you hear this thing, you would make this noise, and it would also do the paper and the pen thing. So, the person who's running the experiment thinks, oh, there's got to be, it's, it's too, it's very regular. It's got to be some piece of equipment in the lab, or in the, those are the soundproof room. There's really nothing there to worry about, so, uh, but he, I think he turned off the exhaust fan, all kinds of stuff, to make sure it's completely quiet. Comes out, he still hear click, click, click in the little speaker, so this, this neuron is still fine. He then thinks it's got to be some of the equipment in the lab. He shuts down everything but the single cell recording gear. And he takes a list of the single cell recording gear. He doesn't have any feet like that. And that. And that. He's like, I'm lost. The thing's clear. I here. I know it's firing. This animal is hearing something. I just don't know what it is. He leaves the room to go tell Barry Frost what's happening, his PhD supervisor. He comes back and notices that it hasn't fired. And it's like, it's something about me. And then he starts to get, he's, you know, looking all over the place, getting all excited, and it's going, it's affecting his heartbeat. So the, the owl, yeah, it gives you goosebumps talking about that. So this owl, in a, in a, what we thought was a soundproof room, what we would describe as one, was hearing this reference through this heartbeat. This is how sensitive the ear of an owl is. It's incredible. It's literally like it shivers up and down my spine talking about this. Because it's like, imagine being able to hear like that. And just the dumb luck that they found one that was sensitive right to that frequency uh, of the sound of this poor graduate student's heart. It's incredible. It's an incredible story. We were all like, when he told us this, uh, it was after the talk, so we were all sitting around drinking beer. And he told us this, and we were like, that's bullshit. There's no way that's true. No, really, I'm serious. So I believe he had no reason to make that up. He was already famous. Um, now, I've told a lot of you guys think about feature detectors too. This is about cute little weasel. Their detection, they're looking for a cat and how they want a Nobel Prize. That's why it mentions the King of Sweden. Um, there are cells in the cortex that respond to different line orientations. And this is in occipital lobe of a cat. And here's the data from the paper. And you can see 
And this is why it looks so lousy, because in fact it's a figure from the paper, and it's not supposed to be that big, it's very small. Uh, it was published in a little journal called uh, Nature. Um, so here's your stimulus. It's a, uh, an angle, it's, it's a line on, I guess that's 135 degrees, is that right? Not 45, but okay. Look at, look at how much this, this, again, you see it's the same kind of notation, how much this cell's firing. When it's straight up and down, it fires less, and when it's exactly the opposite, a 45 degree angle, it's actually just random. So what they had found was a cell in the cortex of a cat that was responding to a line orientation. Right? And that's pretty There they are, Cubal and Weasel. You may think their names are funny, but they did win a Nobel Prize, so they can laugh at you. One of the high points of my life as a graduate student was getting a reprint request. It used to be back, back in the day before PDFs. Like now, nobody gets these anymore, but it used to be that you would get, caught, you would get 200 copies of a paper you published. And then people, if they wanted to read it, and they heard about it, they would send you a little postcard that said, I would like a copy of this. And you'd get to the new and you get about two, three hundred of these, depending on the journal, and you'd send them Nowadays, what you do is you email the person and say, no, copy, they email back to you. Uh, you know, so that isn't that anymore. But up until the, geez, up until the early, early 2000s, this was always, this was the way had things worked. And I once got a reprint request, and it said it was from, uh, it was from David Hubel, and I was like, the guy who wouldn't know about was there somewhere in room. I said, no, my supervisor said, probably not, Dave, it's probably that he, his secretary has an automatic thing set up that any time anything's mentioned that has anything to do with whatever with, with something, it just just writes up this thing. I said, "Oh, thanks. I thought I had all prize and wanted to read my work. I still have a little cards on Now, if we, uh, one thing I didn't mention here, that one of the things that could be the case then is these feature detectors are probably networked together to recognize objects. Right? So if you're recognizing, if you've got a, uh, a cell that recognizes a line like that, and a cell that recognizes a line like that, right? And then one, now you're going to say, and then one recognizes like that, and you're saying, Dave, that's the same as this one. Yeah, but there's also going to be a spatial one. Another cell that says that it's just to the right of this one. So we've got a, we'll call this, uh, we'll make it an angle cell. It's finding the detection of these angles. So you have another cell that recognizes an angle like that, one recognizes an angle like that, one like that, one like that. If all of these cells, okay, if these all fire at the same time and are synapsed onto another cell, it's a cell that recognizes a diamond. That's probably how it works. Right. And you got to realize, just even have a feature detector that's going to detect an angle, for it to fire, a whole bunch of other things have to fire first, because it's going to have to recognize, take a look at the stimulus, this thing's going to have to recognize figure and ground. When I mentioned this yesterday, in behavior. It's going to have to mention, recognize figure and ground, so that there's an object here and nothing here. Right? So it's not so simple as that the most basic unit is not a line. Right? It's going to be something even much more basic than that. 
Some other really neat feature detection work is work that was done by Dave Parrott. Um, and Dave is a, uh, uh, I think he's at University of St. Andrews, still in Scotland. And that's actually Dave in the 80s. Early so, 90s, probably. I told some of you guys about how uh, he was the guy that made me want to go to graduate school. I saw a talk by him at Western when I was an undergrad. I worked on a summer end circuit. I was like, oh, Dave Parrott's coming. I was like, who's he? And then I said, well, he's a really important researcher. He's seen some recording work in monkeys. It's really awesome. Uh, and I look at the little poster, and it says, uh, Dr. David Parrott, FRS. And FRS is the of the Royal Society, which is like, you know, Newton, Darwin, but also people like Engel Tolving in psychology, or Sarah Shuttleworth, my PhD supervisor. You know, really important people. And those people, you don't get that when you're young. You get that when you're, like, you're really happy if you get that, if you get invited to join the Royal Society when you're in your 40s. Like, like Sarah did. So it's, it's all pretty impressive, you know. So. And I think, oh, he's got to be, well, let's see, St. Andrews, and I, of course, I'm thinking like an idiot. So that, well, he must be Scottish. I'm not thinking that they're going to be all over the place. Um, so I think I'm going to see like, a distinguished Scottish professor come in. He's going to well, today, lads, I'm going to talk about the Cinnabar. You know, so I'm expecting that. He's going to be wearing, uh, you know, like a tweed jacket and the whole thing, and you know, perhaps a pipe. And a scarf, maybe. I think he had a scarf. I think he got like that once, John Pierce from University of Cardiff. He came to visit our lab, and he looked just like that. He was like, You're Doctor Who! Like the, the, the original Doctor Who. Anyway. So I expect this. I go and I sit down, and a guy comes in, and he's wearing a biker jacket and and boots up to his knees, which was very nice for me because I was wearing biker boots up to my knees that had chains hanging off of me. It was a silent time. It was 1987. And he had a biker jacket on, and he had uh, he was wearing green pants, and he had a purple mohawk. And he walked in, and he, it was probably 32, 30, 32. Right, we're going to talk about some single cell recording and some monkeys. This is awesome. This job has no dress code. A famous guy dresses like bands I like. So, um, there you go. That's what I'm going to do for a living. He's amazing. He's amazing. He also um, has the ability to drink a great deal. I can tell you that as well. He doesn't look like that anymore. I haven't seen him in about 10 years, but he doesn't. So, um, so, monkeys have cells in their cortex that respond only to specific monkeys. Right? Only to certain monkeys. So they see a picture of a monkey, and if it's the monkey they know, the cell fires. If it's the monkey they don't know, the cell doesn't fire. And you think, what about two monkeys that they both know? So if it's like Steve the monkey and Eddie the monkey, there's a Steve the monkey cell and Eddie the monkey cell. And that is awesome. So there are individual cells... No, it's this. It's, it's more complicated, right? It's not just a, a square. It's Eddie the monkey. <clears throat> it's like the idea of the grandmother cell, right? Which is the idea that to recognize you. And people used to ridicule the idea of feature detectors until Hugh Blue Weasel came along and, and David Parrott and all these things. And when Hugh Blue Weasel talked about networking, people said, oh, that's crazy. Is there a cell for your grandmother? A grandmother cell? Yes. <laughs> yes, I think there is. 
Right? So big parrots actually found in monkeys, a grandmother cell. The interesting thing about this is that the cell doesn't fire when the face is upside down. Only when the face is right side up. And this is even true with behavioral experiments. If you take monkeys and you train the monkeys, you get very good at this very quickly. Which monkey is this? And if it's this monkey, push the button and you get a banana pellet, you know? Or a little squirt of orange juice in your mouth. Monkeys are very good at this. People are good at this. If you turn the thing upside down, they're not quite as good at it. And you think, wait a second. I mean, well, they can do it to a point with monkeys, but they aren't as good. The weird thing is they can also do it with people. So if you show monkeys pictures of people, they can be able to have a little genocide, right? But with, with people upside down, the cell doesn't fire at all. Not at all. And it's like, why is that? And it's the same thing behaviorally. They'll, they'll be slow, but they'll, and they won't be as accurate when it's upside down monkeys, but they'll eventually get it. Not, not as accurate. But with people, they fall apart. They fall apart. And there's a couple of possibilities here. It might be the case that humans are a supernormal stimulus of being a primate. We're the most primate-looking primate out there. Right, think about primates. They don't have big foreheads. Oh, sorry, they, they, don't, they don't have sloping foreheads. They have big foreheads. And we have the biggest of all of them. Right? They don't have snouts. They have noses. Right? And we have the most of that. They have less hair on their face. We have virtually none. And maybe those are things that are used to recognize the individuals. And when they're upside down, they're being screwed up. I'll show you an interesting... I was going to go out of the presentation for a second here. And I gotta find. Let's go to. Let's use the Safari. And. Okay. Now we'll go to Google Images for the release. So this is called the Thatcher effect. Now if you take a look. It's called that because this work was originally done. <coughs> this work was originally done with Margaret, uh, pictures of Margaret Thatcher, uh, the Prime Minister of the UK. If you take a look at the picture on the right, it's clearly been screwed with. Right? You see that? Like, that's obviously somebody's played with that, with a crude version of Photoshop. The one on the left clearly is a picture of, of Baroness Thatcher, as she's now called. But, let's see if we find Take a look at the one on the Now, this is that same weird, u- ugly face upside down. You hardly even notice it. And when people are asked, and also when monkeys are asked, have you seen this face before? You know, again, they can do it. It doesn't work very well, but they can do it. But they don't notice any problem with it when everything's screwed with. It's only when it's right side up. It's crazy. Buddy of mine's done some work on this. Bob Hampton. Now there's a monkey one. It's not the best one. So you can't even really tell until you've got to turn your head upside down. 
pretty, uh, it, it's really quite striking. And it's hard to tell which one's which. I think this one here has been messed with. So it's actually, I mean, there's something special about human faces. What, what is it? I honestly don't know. But it might be this idea of the sort of that humans are the ultimate um, example of what a primate looks like. And what, what we're detecting is that. Now, you know what the neat thing is? Pigeons have no problem with this. So when you get outside, uh, I've never seen it with rats. The rats don't see very well, so visual experiments with rats don't tend to be a good idea anyway. So people try this. Bill Roberts tried this with pigeons. So, and the weird thing is with pigeons, um, they don't show any difference. I'm sorry, I've set up. They just always recognize the faces of the world. So it may be something to do with primates recognizing primates. This is the idea comes from. Question so far? Pretty neat, eh? The factor effect is kind of low. I talked about it once on a, a podcast, a, a science podcast that I guest on sometimes. And they were showing it on the screen, and people were just blown away by it. It's, it's really awesome. Um, so we have probably a hierarchical network here, and it's got to be in parallel, as you know. It's the Julie Jackson principle that nervous systems are parallel and hierarchical. Things are all happening at once, but there are levels. There's a lot of hippocampal work out there. I bet the title there is The Hippocampus Everybody's Playground, which is a friend of mine has a t-shirt that says that on it. And then it's got a, an EEG of a theta wave in the hippocampus. It's a, it's, a joke, it's a joke t-shirt for a very small subset of people. There's their psychology club at the undergrad college you went to that, that was their, their t-shirt. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Now the radio maze, which you probably know about, there's your radio maze. The radio maze is a maze that has eight arms radiating out from a central platform like the spokes of a wheel. He said, quoting Olden Samuels in 1976, who invented this task. The arms tend to be a meter long, okay? And it's elevated, it's on the ground. And this, the rat, and originally rat, but now all kinds of species have been tested on this. The rat's task is to go to the end of the arm and eat food, come back to the middle, the interesting thing here is that rats don't do what you and I would do. I would just go here, then here, then here. I would just go clockwise or counterclockwise. Rats go in a sort of semi-random fashion, except that they don't revisit arms that they've already visited. They don't revisit arms they've already visited. Now, there's two kinds of memory kind of angles we can look at here. One of them is what's called reference memory, which is the rules of the game. And the rules of the game are what? Go to the end of the arm and get food. Now, if we only bait four of the arms, so if these two and this one and this one are the baited arms all the time, and the other four are unbaited, one of the rules of the game is those are the four baited arms, I'll only visit those. And working memory is remembering where you've been in this trial. So have you been down this arm or not? So when you go back down that arm again, that's a working memory error. If you lesion a rat's hippocampus after it's learned about the task, it doesn't make reference memory errors. It keeps going down with the correct arms, but it makes working memory errors. It, it goes down 
the incorrect, it, it, sorry, it repeats arms that's already been down. Right. So they don't affect the reference memory, only the working memory. So it knows how to do the task, it even knows where the, where the, where the food is. It just keeps going down arms it's already been down. And I've worked with hippocampal lesion rats, and it's almost funny to watch them. Because they go down an arm, get the food, go back to the center, and like, go right back down that arm sometimes. They're pretty stupid. And a rat that isn't lesion will never do that. They might go revisit after three or four visits, they would forget. Like the different arms, but it's crazy. And the same thing happens in the Morris water maze. The Morris water maze, developed by Richard Morris, is a big pool, about you know, three, four meters across. Okay, and it's a circle. And it's about that deep, so it's maybe 15 centimeters deep. And it's got a little platform in it, just underneath the surface of the water. Now, you wouldn't use water, you use something that's opaque. So you can use water and color it, but what a lot of times what people do is they use skin milk. Uh, the thing with skin milk is that it's got, it's, it's okay, you can't see through it. And, you know, it's basically, it's not full of fat and all this stuff that's going to um, get gross on the rat. So you take the rat and wash them off and dry them off when he's finished swimming and trying to find, you don't have to worry about getting all of it off of them because it's, it's you know, skin milk is basically just water with chalk in it. Skin milk is stupid. Like light butter. Have you ever seen that? Because they have such things as light butter. What kind of an idiot likes light butter? Maybe if you can't eat butter, don't eat butter. Don't go, well, I'll eat the light butter. Yeah, can I have one of those KFC double downs? Oh, and Diet Coke? Um, oh, this is butter they put water in. I think that's weird. That's my guess. Opposed to it. Just like I'm opposed to skim milk. You ever skim milk? It tastes like milk. It's like. It's a watery. It's got no use. The Morris water maze. So you fill up Morris water maze with this milk, and then the rat swims around in this, and rats don't like to swim. Oh, they can swim. I like it very much. So what they do is they eventually swim around right away, get to the platform, sit up on the platform, and take them out, dry them off, and they learn this pretty quickly. They're pretty motivated. They don't like. It. They don't like swimming. It'd be like, you know, the cat. Cats can swim. They don't like it, but they can swim. Rats are kind of the same way. Yet they're mortal enemies. Anyway. So they're swimming along. They learn very quickly where it is. You do... There's two kinds of experiments you can do here. You can do a reference memory type experiment where it's always in the same place. The platform's always in the same place. Or you can do... The rat learns the repertory part is I have to swim to a platform, but the first thing you do is you put it on the platform, let it sit there for a while, look around, and get sort of the bearings, almost literally, because it looks for the cues, the external cues. And then you take it off, take it out of the maze, put it back, and just drop it in the pool and see if he swims there. That's a, that's a working memory test. They can't do working memory when they hit the campus lesion, but the reference memory thing they can do just fine. And they still well, they still know, they start swimming around sort of looking for the platform, they start flying. Right? 
Morris Water Maze is a pretty, uh, pretty neat thing. I've never actually seen one. I've seen one set up, but not full. My friend Dave, I think, has used Morris Water Maze. Because I think I remember seeing one in his lab at Concordia. He's coming to visit us, by the way, here. Dave Mumby, he's a neuroscientist. He's probably going to give a talk. I'm working on it. Now, this, the hippocampus is a pretty amazing thing uh, because, in fact, there are cells in the hippocampus that are place cells. They fire when the animal is in a certain place. So if the animal's on a, a table, and this is how this work is typically done, and you put it in, say, top left corner, a certain set of cells in the hippocampus will fire. They don't fire in the top right corner, don't fire in the bottom left corner, etc. This is work... Uh, that O'Keefe and Nadell did uh, in a book they published called Hippocampus as a Cognitive Map, which, by the way, is now available free to download. I don't know how that happened, and it wasn't on BitTorrent, because, yeah, that's a lot of little popular torrent. There's a lot of cognitive mapping work. <laughs> it's actual reading. I think it's Lynn Nadell's website. I'm getting mad at this projector. Uh, Lynn Nadell's website, you can just go and download it. It's crazy. So cells, they're like feature detectors, but for places. The world is, is almost certainly not as simple as the hippocampus is a cognitive map. There's just no way it's that simple. Um, and other data since have shown this to be a little bit of a strong position. But it's still pretty damn neat that there are cells in the hippocampus that fire only when an animal is in a certain location. That's pretty nifty. And again, this is done with the same sort of word. So you have the rat hooked up, and he's actually got a, 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 an electrode literally just right into his brain, and usually there's a wire going to a computer. Food storing birds. You know about food storing birds, the Corbin's and Barrington City store food. Most songbirds lead to the winter. We talked about that. Food stores rely on stored food in the winter, and I think I told you that if, if a chicken, for example, doesn't eat within half an hour of waking up, it dies. The thing only weighs 12 grams. They need to eat something. So, there's some interesting cognitive differences, and uh, we will eventually talk more about that. But here's some of the, well, there's chicken, there's Clark's Nutcracker. There's my friend Rob, uh, the guy that had the t-shirt that says that hippocampus is everybody's playground, involving a warthog skeleton. He went on his honeymoon to Africa. It's very raw. It's a very raw thing to do. That's Dave Sherry, and there's uh, Mike Boivere. You may have heard me say sometimes that I, he's an old friend of mine, he's not a graduate student anymore, but he's the first uh, honor student I ever had when I was a postdoc. And, um, you may have heard me say sometimes I make jokes just so I can tell somebody about them. It's him. We have exactly the same sense of humor, which is probably not a good thing. There should be fewer people like us in the world. And that's Sarah Shuttleworth on the right. Walking down South Park Road, you know, very pleased about something. Don't know what. So, now, Sherry et al., Krebs et al., and it's a big long list of names. I think Sherry came out with this first. Dave Sherry's group. 
Uh, they found that the hippocampal volume, when correlated, uh, sorry, directly for body size, its weight is larger in food stores than non-stores. And Al Campbell's group had found the same thing in corvids, which is crows and nutcrackers. Here's two representations of the same kind of data. And what you can see here is, this is the size of the brain, telencephalon, basically, and this is the hippocampal volume. And you can see that in food stores, the hippocampus is bigger than it is in non-stores. Right? This actually is a section of hippocampus right here in a chicken. This shouldn't surprise you because all these adaptations, as I said when we talked about learning, are going to hang out together. You can see from this paper here, this is Hampton Cherry Shuttle with Colonel Lenardi, which sounds like the name of a very, some sort of lame law firm. Hippocampal volume correlates with dependence on stored food. What we have here is the number of caches, in other words, how much food storing three different species do. And we have the black cap chickadee, we have the Mexican chickadee, and the bridal tipnos. Uh, this is work that Rob did when uh, he was also uh, we were both graduate students. So, um, Rob went down to Arizona, and there's in the lived in sort of the mountains of Arizona. Like there's desert there, but there's also high country where it's cold and all this stuff. And he camped out for six weeks catching birds. He asked me to come, and I said, "But there's not going to be any Nintendo or TV there. I'm not going." So he went and caught birds. So he did, he did some experiments on them for six weeks, and then he brought a bunch back to Toronto. And what they did is in the lab, they had them store food. They basically just, in, a, in, a, in an aviary, well, not an aviary, in their cages, they put little blocks, little two by fours, they drove holes in them. And these birds, it's funny because they're compelled to store food, right? So what they do when they wake up in the morning, even though they're in a cage, and they are reliably fed every day, the first thing they do is they eat a little bit, then it's like, well, I have to source some of this food. You never know what's going to happen. And they would put them in these little blocks. So every day they could come in, and I figured what time they did that, but I would imagine it was around noon, because that's usually the most the soaring is done in the morning. And they just have them see if they soar. And you can see uh, the difference here isn't significant between these two. It is between these two and this one. So it is between black cat and Mexican. It's not different. But if you go down to the bridal tip mouse, they, they store less. And then you take a look at the... Um, so that makes two different kinds of experiments. And then you take a look here. This is caches. I think this one here is done. That's the one done with the blocks. This is one done actually in an avia. Okay? So this is a little more naturalistic than this one. And this is the first. This is the first one where a difference pretty clearly showed up, which was the Mexican, sorry, the black cap chickadees store more food than Mexican chickadees or bridal tipnos. The first one was like, there's a difference here, but it's really small. And Rob wasn't very happy because he spent all that time living off the land in Arizona, and nothing was any kind of much of a difference there. But then this worked nicely. Then he looked at hippocampal volume, and he found that this correlated quite nicely. Because we got 
Uh, you don't have to worry about what the variable is. It's, well, it's hippocampus divided by telencephalon. In other words, it's a percentage of brain taken up by hippocampus. And you can see here in the black cap chickadees, it's more than in the Mexican chickadees or the royal chickadees. That's a pretty clear difference. So the more they rely on stored food, the bigger their hippocampus is. Our big hope, actually, when Rob went down there was that either Mexican chickadees or royal chickadees didn't store food. We were really hoping that they wouldn't because we wanted a member of the same family as the black cat chickadee, but they didn't store food. For comparative purposes, and we couldn't find them. Well, I shouldn't say he couldn't find them. I didn't have anything to do with them. Um, Sherry and Baccarino, this is somebody's honors thesis, by the way, so this is quite cool. It's, it's uh, Tony Baccarino's honors thesis. He let chickadees store food, he would then lesion the hippocampus and half of the birds. What happened? They still stored food. But they didn't find their caches anymore. So they'd look, but they couldn't find it anymore. And you can see, in fact, this, this diagram is pretty nice. Pre-surgery and post-surgery. Uh, they will visit Places that they haven't put any food. These are just mistakes. And if they're mistakes, maybe there's something else, but let's just call them mistakes. So they make mistakes. Right? They store food and they look in, sometimes they look in places where they didn't store anything. They're going to make mistakes. But most of their visits are clearly to where the food was. You take a look after surgery. This is the control group, it's a sham lesion group. Right? And this is the hippocampal lesion group. The hippocampal lesion group now is visiting. Stored places they stored food as much as they're visiting places they didn't store food. So they're still storing food because they didn't go the first part of the thing. They stored the food even after they got a hippocampal lesion. They just don't know where it is anymore. So they didn't try. Dave? Yeah. Um, what if chickadees? Yeah. Those are black cap chickadees. Yeah. Barney and Nottebaum in 1994 took a look at chickadees storing, uh, well, chickadees store in the fall and winter, mostly. They don't store in the summer. Well, there's no need to. When you wake up in the morning, you don't have to go searching too far for food. There's food everywhere. But in the winter, you do. What they did is they caught birds at different times of the year, killed them, and looked inside their hippocampus. And they found that during the prime storing months, hippocampus was bigger, and during the months when they weren't storing so much, hippocampus was smaller. So it seemed to shrink and grow. This would make a great deal of sense. The same thing happens, by the way, uh, in male songbirds, where I think it's called the HVC, which is an important part of the brain that controls singing. It shrinks and grows in the because uh, birds do all their singing in the spring and summer. And then when it gets to the winter, it shrinks. So, conversely, if in this case we can't this, it's going to grow in the winter. 
And this is a really great result and very interesting, and unfortunately no one's replicated it. And I don't think that Fernando Nottebaum was thinking his data, because he has no reason to, he was already famous. I don't know what the problem is, I don't know what the difference is. An old student of mine who's now at Dalhousie, uh, Leslie Fillmore, tried for years to replicate this and couldn't. We talked the other day about cowboys. Sherry Jacobson Gollum, if you notice the preponderance of David Sherry work here in all this sort of brain, memory, and evolution stuff. He's one of the key guys. Uh, he's at, uh, he's, I think he's the director of the Graduate Neuroscience Program at Western. He was a good team and he did a lot of this. That's a brown-headed cowbird. Remember talking about cowbirds the other day? It's called a brown-headed cowbird because it's got a brown head. It looks like his head's been dipped in delicious chocolate. Their nest parasites, as you know, and the females have to remember where the possible host nests are. <coughs> So Dave Sherry's done a lot of this work. Uh, Alex Kaselnik's done some of this. A lot of folks have worked on this. I was trying to, but all the birds that we had at Western, when Dave Sherry moved to Western, all the birds that we had uh, all had a whole bad problem with mites, and they were just everywhere. And they were going to infect every animal, even though they're separate, separate rooms now, so we had to actually let them go. It was a shame. And now that guy I showed you, Mike, he was working with them. He did this really cool experiment, and he called me up and he said, because uh, he does that, uh, Dave, yeah? I went to change the water, and it's full of worms. <laughs> okay, that can't be good. And the next day we let the animals go. It was a shame. So the males don't have to remember, all they have to do is produce sperm. The good life for the male cowards. So, of course, you know this. Look at that. Okay. We got two other species here that are somewhat closely related, but they are cowbirds. We got the red winged brackle, uh, red winged blackbird, sorry, the brackle are both very similar birds living in a similar area. Don't show any male female hippocampal difference, but of course, the brown head cowards do. So evolution is acting on the behavior, in this case, with all this stuff, the spatial behavior. The spatial behavior is driven by hippocampus, so you're going to get selection for better spatial behavior. The place spatial memory comes from in all these birds is hippocampus. And it actually, you know, spatial memory and hippocampus goes together. We also, you saw it at the very beginning of this bit, with rats. So we know it all kind of hangs together. Questions so far on that? Pretty neat, eh? All right. We were going to get done early today because you, everybody knows about mods and bats. I'm thinking about explaining. Um, the nervous system controls behavior. And evolution acts then on the behavior. So it must act on the, the nervous system. The food storing story itself is, is just is the most elegant of all of them. Because it fits in with the behavioral angle, it fits in with the idea of an evolutionarily stable strategy <clears throat> of you must recover your own seeds uh, or, or avoid food storing. 
how do you do that with memory? Where do you get memory? Your hippocampus. Who's going to get a bigger hippocampus? Who's going to have a different way of remembering? So the food storing story, to me, is the most elegant example. Uh, I'm, I'm exceedingly biased, obviously, but it's the most elegant example of brain, behavior, evolution, and cognition all coming together. And we'll talk, obviously, more about it because I can't stop talking about it because, you know, without it, I wouldn't be here. I'd be a social psychologist or something. Something boring, uninteresting, and unimportant. Like Paul Dupuy. <laughs> I like Paul. Remember, I, I, I kid because I love. Doesn't he say that as well? He told me he said that. And I said, that's funny, I say that too. We both say it. He was telling me that he got a real kick out of saying bad things about me to people that didn't know him yet. And the student's like, what's he doing? He's making fun of another professor. I shouldn't do that. I think that's great. <laughs> I think that's great. It's like the first day you walk in the intro site and you swear. And you all go, oh. <laughs> right? My professor swears. Oh. Questions? Yeah, please. Uh, does uh, people can in summer or in summer? In summer. Um, but it, nobody's been able to replicate in Audubon and Barney and Audubon's data. So I think it probably does. My gut always said it did that. It just makes sense. Bird brains have to be very efficient. Birds have to be very efficient in general because they have to be able to fly. So anything that makes you lighter, so if you don't need your hippocampus as big, make it shrink. Same thing happens with HVC, the part that controls singing. And again, I think it's HVC, so you guys worry that. Um, it increases in size, and that's reliably been found in the spring, and then that's when they sing, and then it shrinks. So it would make sense that birds would do this. Uh, yeah, birds, the biggest thing that they've been selected for is, for is, is flying, and this is why, you know, even if you look at a chicken, which is a flightless bird, and you snap a chicken bone, they're hollow, because they evolved from a flying bird, right? They're not like a, a bone from a, from a pig or a, or a cow that's solid, but the bones are hollow, so they can fly, they're lighter, right? So... I wouldn't be. I've always figured this was true. Um, when that data came out, we were all very excited in the food storing community because it was like, oh, this is exactly what we expect. And then I know Leslie Fillmore tried for years and she had no luck. Um, I know what the disconnect is there. I mean, I totally trust that Lori, uh, sorry, Leslie did a hell of a job looking at that stuff. Uh, she's a good scientist. I don't know what the difference is. I honestly have no idea. I think they do, but the data has been replicated. I don't think they can say that. Boring manager Rob. Rob say Cook is very diligent, but his output is His code not functional or elegant. What do Code Monkey think? Code Monkey think maybe manager wanna write goddamn login page himself. Code Monkey not say it out loud. Code Monkey not crazy. Proud Code Monkey likes Beatles Code Monkey likes to have a Mountain Dew Code Monkey, very simple man With big, warm, fuzzy, secret heart Code Monkey like you Code Monkey like you Code Monkey hang around at front desk 
is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.